0: Well, thank you. I'm, I'm also very glad to be back with you. Um, I feel so appreciated by you just as a church family. I missed you um, last Sunday, although I was more than happy to spend that time um, with my family, getting used to our new addition, um, baby Grant Elias, who is not really a little guy. He came in over nine pounds, which definitely surprised us. Um, for sure. And I just thank you so much just for the food, um, for the prayers, for for everything that you all have done. Um, you know, he, he came in with a broken arm, and at the beginning that was incredibly scary. I'm thankful it was our second, so we were less scared maybe than we would have been otherwise. Um, but just especially, I think, because of your prayers, just every time we kept hearing from a doctor, the news kept getting better and better instead of starting with Surgery in Oklahoma City every week. It's okay. Seems like it's going to be fine and heal up on his own. So, we're thank you for your continued prayers um, and just for everything that you you have done for us, um, just as a family. I'm just so grateful to be to be your pastor. Um, I just feel so loved by you, and so just want to thank you for that. Um, also, to another small quick announcement um, for Wednesday night. We're I'm gonna I'll be back this Wednesday um, on Zoom as our lesson to start kind of a new mini series. Um, So we're finished up with church history, and so we're going to start a small series just on who is God um, and just kind of answering a couple questions about God and looking closer at His nature, His attributes. We'll look at the Trinity and just try and unpack some of these things. And the the first thing we'll do this week on on Wednesday is we're actually just going to talk a little bit about theology in general um, and just what is theology? What, what What does that mean? Why does it matter? Why is it important? And how do you do it? And part of a sneak preview is everybody does theology. We, we all do. Theology is just things we believe about God. And we all believe something. And so probably be good if we make sure that we're believing the right things or that we're doing the theology we're already doing subconsciously correctly. Um, so I just want to invite you to, to jump in with that with us. Um, if you haven't before, um, don't feel like you have to be there every single week if you're not able to. Just, we, we'd love for you to have, to have you when, when you're able to join us. Um, One thing that that I've noticed, um, again, having a newborn, is how often it seems like I wake up in the middle of the night now, waking up a little more than I used to, um, and every time I wake up, it seems like, wait, didn't I just do this? I thought we just fed him. I thought I just changed his diaper. Look at the clock. What is this again? I feel like only five minutes has passed. What's going on? And it feels like I'm just going in circles. And it feels that way for me in this stage of life, but so often it can seem in in our lives that we're just running our wheels, or that we're just going in circles, we're just kind of doing the same thing over and over, and things aren't really progressing the way that we wish it would. And so often our our faith, especially as the world tells us, that our, our beliefs and our obedience, it seems so outdated. That following Jesus is so antiquated and really pointless, and the world would tell us that even coming to church on Sunday morning is just spinning around like a dog chasing your tail. What are you doing? You're wasting your time. But so what we're going to look at this morning as we dive back into the book of Joshua in chapter 6 is we're going to ask this question of why does our obedience matter, especially when it seems weird, especially when it seems pointless, especially when it seems like we're just going in circles. And so if you you would, you can open up your Bibles with me. We're going to be in Joshua chapter 6. We're going to go through the the whole chapter here, Um, and I'm just going to read it all. So stand if you are able, um, just for the reading of God's Word. And it says, Now Jericho was shut up inside and outside because of the people of Israel. None went out, and none came in. And the Lord said to Joshua, See, I have given Jericho into your hand with its king and mighty men of valor. You shall march around the city, all the men of war going around the city once. Thus shall you do for six days. Seven priests shall bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark. And on the seventh day you shall march around the city seven times, and the priests shall blow the trumpet. And when they make the long blast with the ram's horn, when you hear the sound of the trumpet, then all the people shall shout with a great shout, and the wall of the city will fall down flat. And the people shall go up, everyone straight before him. So Joshua, son of Nun, called the priests and said to them, Take up the ark of the covenant, and let the seven priests bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark of the Lord. And he said to the people, Go forward, march around the city, and let the armed men pass before the ark of the Lord. And just as Joshua had commanded the people, the seven priests bearing the seven trumpets of ram's horns before the Lord went forward, blowing the trumpets at the ark of the covenant of the Lord following them. The armed men were walking before the priests who were blowing the trumpets, and the rear guard were walking after the ark while the trumpets blew continually. But Joshua commanded the people, you shall not shout or make your voice heard, neither shall any word of your mouth go out of your mouth until the day I tell you to shout. Then you shall shout. So he caused the ark of the Lord to circle the city, going about at once, and then they came into the camp and spent the night at the camp. Then Joshua rose early in the morning and the priests took up the ark of the covenant and the seven priests bearing the seven trumpets of rams' horns walked before the ark of the Lord walked on and they blew the trumpets continually and the armed men were walking before them and the rear guard was walking after the ark while the trumpets blew continually and the second day they marched around the city once and returned to the camp so they did for 6 days and on the 7th day they rose early at the dawn of the day and marched around the city in the same manner 7 times It was only on that day that they marched around the city seven times, and at the seventh time when the priests had blown the trumpet, Joshua said to the people, "'Shout, for the Lord has given you the city, and the city and all that is within it shall be devoted to the Lord for destruction. Only Rahab the prostitute and all who are with her in her house shall live, because she hid the messengers whom we sent.'" But you keep yourselves from the things devoted to destruction, lest when you have devoted them you have taken any of the devoted things and make the camp of the Israel a thing for destruction and bring trouble upon it. But all the silver and gold and every vessel of bronze and iron are holy to the Lord. They shall go into the treasury of the Lord. So the people shouted, and the trumpets were blown, and as soon as the people heard the, shout of the sound of the trumpet, the people shouted a great shout, and the wall fell down flat. So the people went straight up into the city, every man straight before him, and they captured the city. Then they devoted all the city to destruction, both men and women, young and old, oxen, sheep and donkeys with the edge of the sword. But to the two men who had spied out the land, Joshua said, go out, go to the, to the prostitute's house and bring out all from there, the woman and all who belong to her as you swore to her. So the young men who had been spies went in and brought out Rahab and her father and her mother and brothers and all those who belonged to her. And they brought all her relatives and put them outside the camp of Israel, and they burned the city with fire and everything in it. Only the silver and gold and the vessels of bronze and iron they put into the treasury of the house of the Lord. But Rahab the prostitute and her father's household and all who belonged to her, Joshua saved alive. And she has lived in Israel to this day because she hid the messengers whom Joshua sent out to spy Jericho. And Joshua laid an oath on them at that time, saying, Cursed be before the Lord be the man who rises up and rebuilds this city, Jericho. At the cost of his firstborn son shall he lay its foundation. At the cost of his youngest son shall he set up its gates. So the Lord is with Joshua, and his fame was in all the land. This is the word of the Lord. The grass withers and the flower fades, but God's word stands forever. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for your word. Um, I thank you for the chance to sing praises to You together, to read Your Word publicly, and to hear from it and to hear not what I would say, Lord, but what You would have for us. Pray that You would uh, forgive us of our sins, Lord, that You would open up our eyes and our ears so that we can be attentive and hear from You this morning. And give me boldness, Lord, to preach Your Word and only Your Word. We pray these things in Your holy and precious name. Amen you can be seated. So, point number one, if you like to take notes in your bulletin or whatever, however you like to do that, is that faith obeys even when it seems foolish. Faith obeys even when it seems foolish. Now, the instructions that God gives to Joshua here to take this city are not exactly sound military strategy. Okay, I'm not an engineer. I'm not an expert on ancient siege techniques, though I've watched a lot of movies on it. Okay, but I feel really confident Feel very confident that marching around a city in circles and blowing trumpets is not the best way to take over a city. Okay, I don't think it would even make a top 100 list on new strategies that you could do. I think this would not make it. If someone was in the planning room with Joshua like, okay, how are we going to do this? And someone other than God said, hey Joshua, I got a plan. Let's march in circles and let's blow some trumpets and let's just see what happens. I think he would get thrown out. Okay, he would probably lose his rank, and this person's obviously an idiot. We can't listen to anything they say, right? And verse 1 really lays up how foolish this plan is, because look, now Jericho is shut up inside and outside. It is making it clear, these walls are shut. There is no way in. It's trying to build this image of the problem facing Jericho and facing the people of Israel. But God gives them details of this plan, really explicit details on exactly how this circling and this marching is supposed to look. And they're to do this for a week straight. Yeah, that does not sound like my favorite week. They're just going to march around the city. And the last day, they're going to march around the city seven times. Okay, if I'm them and I'm hearing this, I would think, God, why? Why? Why would we do this? This doesn't even make sense. And so that's the question, why would God do this? Why would God have their first battle in the land? So the first conquest, the first thing that we're seeing where there's fighting in the book of Joshua, there's a lot more to come. Why would God do it this way? Well, part of it is because victory does not depend on their sound military strategy. Okay, victory in taking over the land, it is completely dependent on their obedience. Are they going to choose to trust God? Are they going to obey Him even when it seems foolish? Because if they follow the instructions, then God's going to give them victory. But if they disobey, it's, they're, they're not going to have victory. And we'll see later, there are going to be chapters to come where they actually have some sound military strategy. They do things differently. God has Joshua do some things that are smart to win. But He doesn't do that here, and He doesn't do it the first time because if that was what happened every time, <clears throat> then we could say, well, you know... Really, Israel won because Joshua is so smart. But God wants to set the tone very early. No, Joshua and the people of Israel only win because of God and His power. Victory doesn't depend on anything else other than faithful obedience. And the question is, are they going to be obedient even when it seems foolish? Even when God's instructions don't make any sense? I think Veggie Tales, the the classic, gets this right in their little episode on Jericho and how really dopey this is. They just get mocked and laughed at by the, the people at Jericho. What are you dopes doing? You're just marching around the city. And here's the other thing in verse 10. As they're marching around here, okay, you'd think, okay, well, maybe it's going to be intimidating. It'll scare them. They'll see how powerful and big our army is. But they can't even talk. They have to be silent. You shall not make shout or make your voice heard. It's just a very quiet march around. The only thing you hear are some trumpets and footsteps. But here's the deal, so much of what God asks us to do, not just what He asks Israel and Joshua to do, what He asks us to do as believers, looks foolish. And to the world especially, it seems foolish. Why would we follow what God says about human sexuality? Why would we listen to what the Bible has to say about that? Why would I give my money away and why would I be charitable and be generous to the poor who may just waste it just because God tells me to say, that doesn't make any sense Why would I turn the other cheek on my enemy? He's just going to punch me again. Why would I love that person who hates me? They hate me. They're a jerk. Why wouldn't I just stand up and punch them in the face? They deserve it. Why would I forgive somebody seven times? They're just going to do it again. I'm going to have to forgive them one more time. Why would I march around seven times around this city? The last six times didn't do anything. The world tells us that obeying Jesus is dumb. The world tells us that, the world tells me, especially as a pastor, that spending my time just trying to open up and explain this book to you is a waste of time, and I should give you some different kind of wisdom. The world tells us that what we do, trying to be faithful and obedient to God, is foolish. Can you imagine how Israel felt on the fourth day? Okay, we read through it fairly quickly. Maybe it didn't feel super quick, but as you, we're reading through it, right, it doesn't take long for us to experience it. Mean, this is a week. So on the fourth day, when they get out to march again to look at the walls, they say, hey, does it look any shorter to you? It looks the same. I don't think anything's happened. How about the fifth day? Or that seventh day on their fourth lap around or the fifth lap, and I, these walls aren't budging. I don't know what God's doing. Do you, are, you, are you sure? Joshua, is this really what God wants us to do? And they have to be quiet. You know, that, that's probably good because if it was me, I would complain here. Okay, I'd be doing a lot of complaining. Especially on the, that day of seven laps, you're like, man, who, who is in charge? Who came up with this? I didn't hear God say this. Are you sure? I mean, Moses, I would believe. Joshua, I don't know if he has it all together. But look what Israel does. Israel has faith. And Israel obeys completely even when it seems foolish. And it does seem foolish. because look. Do you notice when we read the passage, it feels like there's a lot of repetition there? Maybe you felt like I skipped back and I read the same verse twice because there's a lot of verses that just pop up and it's just kind of describing, well, then they got up and they marched around and they went to bed Then they got up and they marched around again. Well, why would it do that? I don't think Joshua is just copy pasting and trying to make his book longer. I think what God is trying to make us see is even as you read it, get to the idea of how foolish this sounds, how hard that would have been to everyday trust, to everyday mark, take another lap around the city. But Israel does it, and they do it quietly. They do it without complaining. They believe God. They trust Him. They obey even when it seems foolish, even when it doesn't make any sense, even when the walls seem to be the same height every lap they take around. They trust that God will keep His Word because that's what faith does. Faith obeys even when it seems foolish, even when it doesn't make sense, even when we don't understand. Faith trusts God's Word. They don't question it. They have faith, and they prove their faith through their obedience. And we see the cry, their, their final shout that they give at the end, right, in 20, is the, the word to describe that shout is actually, it's got two things going on. One, it's used often to describe a war cry, so you'd expect that, right? We're about to go into battle, so everyone's going to shout to intimidate, get your energy out because we're excited, and here we go. But it's also used to describe a shout of praise to the Lord, its used to describe singing praises to God. And so both of these are kind of happening at the same time when they, the walls finally fall down when they shout out praises to God after doing all of these laps around the city. And what happens? The wall falls down flat. not just a little bit. It doesn't just you get a hole so one person can go in and it's all funnel through. It doesn't just get halfway down or a little bit. It falls completely flat, but only after they obey. And only after they obey completely. Now point number two uh, for taking notes is that uh, disobedience brings fierce judgment. Disobedience brings fierce judgment. And now it's, I have to take some time here to talk about the judgment of God, especially because we need to talk about this because of what God describes, how Joshua is supposed to treat the people of Jericho. If you look at 17, it describes, "In the city, and all that is within it shall be devoted to the Lord destruction." Okay, that sounds pretty serious, but 21 lays out how, how do they do this, how are they supposed to do this, and they devote all in the city to destruction, both men and women, young and old, oxen, sheep, and donkeys with the edge of the sword. They slaughter everybody in the town, everyone, every living thing is dead, except for Rahab and her family. And we're going to talk about her in a moment, but we need to sit and talk about judgment First. Because it's clear, what God tells them to do is to wipe out every single person in the city. To wipe it off the map forever. And this is an uncomfortable passage. It should be an uncomfortable passage. And the rest of the book is going to be filled with passages like this. This is just the beginning of the conquest. And so that's why, let's take time, let's talk about it now. Um, we'll touch on it a little bit as we go on, but I won't spend as much time later. But we, what we need to do is we need to sit here in the uncomfortableness of this without skipping over it. Because the reality is that God's judgment should always make us shudder. Seeing the judgment of God should give us pause. It should make us uncomfortable. It shouldn't fill us with glee. It shouldn't just make us nod our heads and go, yes, they got what they deserve. Woohoo! If we really understand God's judgment, it should make us afraid, and it should make us pause to examine ourselves first to see if that judgment's not going to come for us next. And unbelievers, often they will point to passages like this and many other places in the Bible, and they will use it to talk about the cruel nature of God. And they will say, in fact, often that's why you hear the Old Testament God, right? Or, well, I like Jesus, but I don't like the Old Testament God. That, that God seems like a jerk. He seems really mean. Or they'll just use the word Old Testament to describe things that are brutal and terrible, and generally, they're thinking of passages like this, and, and somewhat, there's a guttural response they have that like, oh, that makes me uncomfortable that's leading them that way, which is good, but they don't follow it out to where they should. But when we see this, it should cause us to pause and ask, why would God do this? Why does disobedience bring such fierce judgment from God? Is God just cruel? Does God just like watching women and children get slaughtered? Does He revel in the shedding of blood? Well, let's, let's take a closer look at this. So first, we need to see some of the things that this judgment is not. Look at verses 18 and 19. "'But you keep yourselves from the things devoted to destruction, lest when you have devoted them you take any of the devoted things and make the camp of Israel a thing for destruction and bring trouble on it.'" We're going to talk about that next week. They don't fully listen to this. And 19, "'But all the silver and gold and every vessel of bronze and iron are holy to the Lord, and they go into the treasury.'" Of the Lord. Now, there's a lot to unpack here. There's a lot to unpack in this whole chapter, but especially in this. So, this word devoted is getting repeated a lot. It, some of your translations may say banned. It may say just set apart. And the point of it is that these things are set apart for God under judgment, that God has decided these things must pay the penalty of disobedience and sin. And part of it is God wants Israel to understand that this war, this conquest, is not for their own enrichment. They are not conquering the city of Jericho so that they can go and take a bunch of slaves and they can load up their bank accounts and they can spread out on some new land. It's not just for themselves. That what they are doing at Jericho is an act of the judgment of God. It is not like a conquest of the other nations. They don't get to just destroy Jericho because they want what it has, as other nations do. And another thing, we don't have time to look at all these passages, but some places that will help you here is Deuteronomy. God actually gives Israel and gives Joshua a lot of clear instructions on what their warfare is supposed to look like, on how when they engage, especially when they go into the promised land and they start fighting, here is what you should do. Here is how you will act. You have Deuteronomy 13, um, verse 12 to the end of the chapter, gives a, a long description, and that description is particularly important because there it describes okay, if you ever conquer a city or if there's a city in Israel that is filled with idol worship, this is what you do. You devote everything to destruction. You destroy all of it. You burn it to the ground and you make sure no one ever lives there again because that is how seriously God takes disobedience and how seriously He takes idolatry. And everything in this city should just go in a big pile and burn it. And it actually describes how you burn it as an offering to the Lord to appease His judgment. And the, and the gold and the bronze and all these other things, they go to the temple, right? They're not going to the temple so that the priests can pad their salaries or build bigger houses. It's just going to God and no one else. And another way, so when we see and we look back at Deuteronomy 13 and we can ask, well, man, why is God treating Jericho this way? Well, we can infer it's because of their idolatry. It's because of their sinfulness. It's because of their disobedience. It's not just because they're not Israelites it's not just because they're in a really good pot, a lot of land and God wants to take it for somebody else. They're being destroyed because of their sinfulness and no other reason. Well, that's the primary reason. And we may say, wow, that seems really extreme. Why would God do this? Well, if you actually go back to Genesis 15, okay, all the way back to God talking with Abraham, and God's making a promise with Abraham, and Abraham, I'm going to give you so many descendants. And not only that, I'm going to give your descendants the promised land. Okay, God promised this land a long time ago. This is 400 plus years before we get here now. But you know what God says in in verse 16 when He's talking to Abraham? He says, look, you're not going to get the land yet because the sin of the Amorites isn't complete. He says, I'm going to give them more time to repent. I'm going to give those people more time to turn from their sin. I'm going to give them more and more. I'm going to give them 400 years of chances to stop worshiping idols. And you see, even in the, in the fierce judgment of God, there's mercy and there's patience. And we may ask the, the question of, okay, well, what standard is God using to, to judge Jericho, right? Well, they didn't get the law, right? Moses got the law. They don't have the Ten Commandments. They don't have all the 200-plus the commandments for the things that they should do. So is God judging them for that? That doesn't seem fair. They don't even know about it, right? Well, how often what happens and the way that God judges nations is Israel gets judged for if they follow the law because they have God's Word. So He says, you have it, it's clear, you should know better. If you don't follow it, here's the judgment that comes for you. But Jericho and other nations, they don't get judged based on whether or not they're following all the intricacies of the law and if tat- their hair is the right length or if they're putting the right things on their door. They primarily get judged for how they treat their neighbors. They primarily get judged for how they treat people for how they treat others, if they're actually going to honor them, right? So they're judged for how they treat the poor. And you can see this throughout the prophets. If you read the prophets and you look at a lot of the way the prophets speak to other nations, you'll see this pop up. They're judged for the mistreating of the poor. They're judged for being a place of injustice. They're judged for taking bribes. They're They're judged based on how they treat the weakest among them. They're judged for how they treat women. They're judged on how they treat refugees from other nations. They're judged for attacking and conquering other nations. And you, you can look at all these places, especially Jeremiah, Isaiah, Amos. They have a lot to say about what these other nations do. And the book of Romans in chapter 2 and 3 it really unpacks some of this as well for, for all of us outside of Jesus and the Word. How does God judge? And it lets us know that you know that the, every. Nobody has an excuse when it comes time for judgment. That's what Romans tells us. That we all have a conscience, that God has put some laws in our mind. We all know there's some kind of standard for right and wrong. And nobody holds their own standard. We all violate it in one way or another. And that is enough to bring God's judgment. So when we look at the judgment that God brings against Jericho, we we need to see it's not arbitrary. God didn't just get mad one day and decide to smack them off the map. That it was actually He gave them, it. it is fair, it is justice, and God gave them a long time, a long time to turn from their sins. We need to see especially that what actually happens is God is doing justice in this moment, and God is love, right? So God is love. God is also justice, and God also brings judgment. So that raises the question, well, how can a God of love do things like this? Well, part of an answer is, you, you can think about it this way. Okay? I, I have two sons now. I'm very excited that I have two sons. One's only a little over a week old. I, I love both of those boys. If somebody harmed my sons, how would you think I would respond if somebody really seriously harmed my sons, if my response was to just kind of shrug my shoulders and say, "Well, you know, it's okay. People make mistakes. Oh, you know, people are just basically good, so it's fine." Well, you know, we're supposed to forgive people, so it really doesn't matter. We're just going to let this go. What would that make you wonder about how much I love, actually, love my sons? Okay, if I could just shrug off somebody seriously harming them then you, you would wonder, I don't know if you really love them. Well, because I love my sons, if someone harmed them, I would want justice. I would want God to bring justice. I would want something to happen to make this right. Well, if God is love, the reason He brings judgment is because He loves. If He never brought any judgment, and if He just shrugged His shoulders at 400 years of sin, at 400 years of sacrificing children on altars and mistreating and injustice, then what kind of God would that be? That doesn't seem like a God who really loves and who really cares. And so that, that is at least part of it, why God has to bring judgment and why our disobedience brings fierce judgment is part, at least in part because God desperately loves us and loves His people and that sin violates that. Sin hurts the people that He loves. But we also need to see here, and this is maybe even more important, is that this is where disobedience leads this is where sin leads. Sin always will lead to judgment. Sin will always really lead to death. And, the next, and God takes sin and disobedience seriously. Next week we'll look at two chapters where God really unleashes on Israel for their sin. And this chapter, it ends really with Joshua laying out this elaborate curse again, where he's saying if you even try and build this city again, it's going to cost you your firstborn, you set up the gates, it's going to cost you your youngest son. We wonder, man, why would would he do that? Well, it's a reminder too to generations to come. This is how God feels about sin. This is how God feels about idolatry. Don't go back there. And we we always need to be reminded, and we need to be reminded this morning about the judgment of God. And God's judgment, it's really not my favorite thing to preach, okay? Um, When I started to feel called to ministry and started dreaming and thinking about getting to preach every week, this wasn't what I thought I would love to do. Like, you know, I just want to preach on hell and fire and brimstone every week. That would be great. So, you know, pound the pulpit and get mad and tell everyone why they're going to hell if they don't turn to Jesus. Okay, that's not what I wanted to do. It's not what I like to do. It's not my favorite thing. But I cannot ignore it when it is explicitly in the text, When there are hard passages in Scripture, I want to be the kind of pastor that leans into it and doesn't just brush over it and make you wonder, wait, what? We just skipped over that. That seemed kind of important. And the reality is that this is a warning for all of us, not just for unbelievers, that life outside of Jesus, life in sin and disobedience, it leads to eternal death. It doesn't mean I want to talk about it every week, but it is a reality. We cannot apologize for it. We cannot downplay it. We can't try and make it seem as if that is not true. And sin and this death, it leads to being separated from God for all eternity. Sin only ever leads to death and destruction. Sin it is like a roller coaster that gives you thrills and it's exciting as it goes up and down, but at the end, it goes completely off the rails and launches you into a cavern to your, cavern to your death. Sin may feel good in a moment, but will never lead anywhere good. And this judgment and death, it's not something that as Christians I think we should be excited about or should, should clap and cheer for, but it's not something that we should be ashamed of either. And the reality is the fate that Jericho faces, the fate that Jericho experiences, is the fate that every single human being on earth deserves. It is the fate that you deserve. It is the fate that I deserve. We all deserve Death, eternal death, because of our disobedience and because of our sin. But look, in the midst of this this story of judgment and the fierceness and the horribleness of it, there's a declaration of salvation. Point number three is that salvation is available to any who would come. Salvation is available to any who would come. You may notice that Rahab pops up again. Okay, we talked about Rahab back in chapter 2 several weeks ago, and we talked about her faith and how even though she's a citizen of the people of Jericho and she is not a member of God's family, she sees and she hears about God, and so she's willing to walk away from everything she knows to embrace obedience and faith in God's family. And so God saves her, and the spies promise that she will be delivered. And so she shows up here again in this chapter You may wonder why she showed up in two, and then we don't hear from her again now. She doesn't just show up again because Joshua is giving us a chronology and wants us to see all the details. She shows up again, sandwiched between the judgment, sandwiched between the punishment so that we see even in the midst of judgment, there is a way out. There is an escape. There is deliverance that is available for any who would come and embrace it. We need to see, you know, grace wasn't invented in the New Testament with Jesus. Okay, Jesus didn't invent saving people from their sins. He just accomplished it. Jesus, everything that God is, Jesus is. Because Jesus is just a reflection of the Father. Jesus is the God of the Old Testament with flesh. And so that means that anything Jesus is with His love and His grace has to be present in here, even here in Joshua 6 with God because God the Father is full of mercy and love and patience. And I mentioned before, you know, God waits 400 years to bring the judgment. Why? Because God gives us time. And why would God wait so long? Why would He leave so much time for the people? Because God wants us, He wants all people to come to Him to embrace salvation. He longs and he hopes and he, and he prays that not just Rahab and her family, but that the whole city would come and turn from their sin. In Deuteronomy 20, it's, a, it's another chapter I forgot to mention that, that lists out some, some rules and regulations for warfare for Israel. And one of them is that when they come to a city, they, before they go in, they give it a chance to repent and to turn to faith. And that's what God does. Grace is always waiting for us that God the Father sent Jesus down to earth to live a perfect life, to preach the kingdom and to die on the cross for our sins, to pay the penalty, just so, not just so that we could be saved and not just so we could be delivered from judgment, though that's what He does. But he, and He did that for, for any who would come, not just for the children of believers, not just for a, a handful of special disciples. Jesus died for anyone who would be willing, including Rahab and her family. And Rahab reveals to us, again, this is true, that no one is too far from God's grace. That God's grace is always open and available for us. And there is an escape from judgment. And the escape is the cross, and the escape is Jesus. And He didn't just die so that we could escape judgment at the end he didn't just die so one day we can get our ticket to heaven and we get to go there and it'll be lovely and great. But He died so that we could have eternal life, not just then, but today. So that our lungs could be filled with the eternal life even now as we embrace Jesus. We could get a taste of it. And so if you're listening today online or here and you don't know Jesus, I beg you to come to Him. Because He knows you, He loves you, and it is not too Late. As long as there is breath in your lungs, there is still time, and God will give you. You don't know how much time He'll give you, but He will give you more time than any of us deserve, because salvation is available to any who want it. Jesus gave His very life for all of us because He loves us and He wants us in His family. So our application this morning, kind of circling back to to, to faith and obedience. Is that we need to keep obeying even when nothing happens. And we need to keep obeying even when nothing happens. What do you think would have happened in this story if Israel stopped marching on that fourth day? If Israel decided on the second day, no, Jesus, or no, God, don't think this is that great of a plan. I think we'll just march on it. We're going to build some sweet ladders, get a nice siege tower I've been working on. We're just going to try that instead. Your plan doesn't seem very good. What would have happened? Well, we can see later in the rest of the book of Joshua, whenever they don't listen to God's plan, it never goes well. Never. Even when they have overwhelming forces. So the faith of Israel was revealed because, not just because they obeyed even when it didn't make sense, but because they kept obeying. Because they obeyed even when nothing was happening. They obeyed all the way to the end. Their obedience wasn't determined on what they saw God doing in the moment. They didn't just obey because, well, the wall's getting a little lower the lap, so Oh, let's do another one. This is great. They didn't just obey because they saw that God was moving. They obeyed even when it seemed like God wasn't. And God showed up at the end. The walls fall flat because they obeyed all the way to the end. God wants all of our obedience. He doesn't want half-hearted obedience. That's why we need to keep obeying even when nothing happens. We need to learn from Israel's example. And we need to be obeying God even when it doesn't seem like it's working. Okay, we don't follow Jesus just because He makes our lives work perfectly. At least we shouldn't. If you're trying to follow Jesus because you think that's true, you are in for a world of disappointment. We need to keep obeying Jesus even when it seems like it's not worth it, even when it seems like nothing is happening. We need to keep reading our Bibles even when I open it up and I read it and I, maybe I feel really good, I spend 30 minutes in it, and I close it and I feel like nothing happened. I didn't even learn anything. My heart doesn't even feel warmed. I don't feel like I love Jesus any more than I did before. We need to keep turning those pages. We need to keep meditating on the words of the Scripture even when it feels like it's just words or it's going in one ear and out the other. We need to keep doing our study of the the Word even when we don't find anything new or anything interesting. We need to keep reading God's Word even when it bores us, even when it doesn't seem to make a difference in our lives. We need to keep obeying and we shouldn't be discouraged when our prayers are unanswered. When that thing you've been praying about for four years, once again, still doesn't seem to come to pass. When that loved one you've been praying for for decades still doesn't come to faith, we need to keep praying. We keep obeying even when nothing is happening. We shouldn't be discouraged even when our obedience doesn't seem to get rewarded. To keep obeying even when we're generous and we give and, we're, giving, and we're, trying to, we're tithing and we're giving away even more and we're trying to let God be in charge of our finances but yet then it seems issues come and more money's going out than is coming in. and We go, God, why, why are you doing? I'm doing the right things here, God. We need to keep obeying. We need to keep loving our enemies and we need to keep loving that person who's hard for us to love even if they aren't getting nicer towards us. They're actually getting meaner. We need to keep loving. We need to obey God seven times. We need to keep obeying even when nothing's happening. You see how often that word, that seven, just pops up over and over and over again. It's showing how much we need to press into obedience. That We just need to keep obeying over and over again. We need to keep obeying even when the world mocks you and tells you you're wasting your time. We need to keep obeying even when the enemy whispers in our ear that there's a bunch of other things we could be doing better with our time than being here on Sunday morning. When the enemy whispers in our ear that there are better things you could be doing than praying for as much as you are today. Even as our heart tells us that maybe things would go better if we just didn't obey as much, if we compromised just a little bit here, maybe things could go a little bit better. We need to keep obeying. And God just doesn't want us to be obedient today, but He wants us to be obedient tomorrow and then tomorrow after tomorrow, and obedient all the way to the end, and all the tomorrows to come. Because real obedience, and really faith especially, is revealed not in the moments when the walls of Jericho come crashing down. Faith is revealed in those moments when nothing is going on. When it seems like God isn't answering, when it seems like nothing, you are gaining absolutely nothing for being obedient and following Jesus. That is the moment that your faith is really tested. That is the moment when it is really revealed when you press to it, when you obey anyway, even though it doesn't seem like you're getting something out of it. But why would we do this? Right, I could tell you we need to obey like that because if you just obey long enough, the, the walls of Jericho around your life are going to come crashing down. Right, I, I could do that. Some preachers do that. You could say, you know, if you just obey long enough and you trust hard enough, every good thing will, will come true. You, you'll get wealth and stuff is going to happen and everything's going to work out for you. Just keep obeying until you get there. I, I, I hope that's true. I, I, I long and I pray and I wish that would be true for you. But what I, I don't know if it will be, and often I am sure there will be things in your life that you pray for that you never see come to pass. There will be days when you read God's word and you feel like that there was nothing in it. There will be days that it takes everything in you just to be obedient and you're going to finish at the end of the day and just be weary. We are only obedient, if we only follow Jesus because we want things, because we want Him to give us something, we are missing the entire point of obedience and we are missing the entire point of following Jesus. We need to be obedient and we need to keep obeying when nothing happens, not because it's what makes things happen, but because we love Jesus. That we read our Bibles even when it doesn't seem worth it because we love Jesus. That we pray even when those prayers go unanswered because we love Jesus. We come to church on Sunday even if when we leave and we walk out the sermon wasn't very good and we didn't like the music and we didn't even see any of our favorite people because we love Jesus. Because that is why we come. We obey Jesus because we love Jesus. That is why. And, and here's what I do know, church family. The, the Jericho's walls in your life, whatever those are, they may never come tumbling down. They, that may never happen for you. But Hebrews 11 is filled with story after story after story of men and women and believers who never saw their walls come tumbling down, who longed and who prayed for a promised land they never got to see. Who, who Moses Abraham, who dreamed of a city that he never got to lay his eyes on. But if we ask who died without getting to see the victory that Joshua sees here, and his fame grows because he's obedient the fame of many of these believers did not grow. But here's what I do know. If we get to stand face-to-face with any of those believers, or when we get to stand face-to-face with Jesus one day, our obedience will have been worth it. That when we get to look Jesus in the eyes on that last day, whenever that is for us, whether He comes or whether we go to meet Him, when we are looking our Savior in the eye, I don't think at the back of our mind we're going to think, you know what? I really wish I would have punched that person because it would have been worth it. All right, you know what? I really wish I would have cheated on my taxes a little more because I think I could have got some better stuff to happen. You know what? I really wish I wouldn't have spent so much time praying because that didn't happen anyway. And well, now I'm here and it's all good. So that, that seemed like kind of a waste. But I think when we look Jesus in the eyes, we will wish that we would have obeyed every single moment of our life. That we will wish all those times when nothing happened, that we could go back and take them back. Even those tiny, smallest things, we will wish we could have done it. Not because we will be filled with regret, but because we will see how worth it all of those moments were. And in the glory and the wonder and the splendor of who Jesus is, and when our hearts are finally filled, and they're not filled and corrupted by sin and all of the distractions, when we just get to behold Jesus completely, we will see how lovely and wonderful He is and that every single moment of obedience was worth it. It will be worth it. Following Jesus is worth it, church family. One day, one day, when the resurrection comes, when Jesus comes back, when we get to meet Him, when we get to see Him, when we get to hold His hand, when we get to hug Him, we will see that our life was not spent going around in circles. That all the moments we spent longing, pressing into obedience, the moments that were hard, the moments that we could barely open our Bibles, we had to force ourselves to do it, we will see that they were worth it. Because Jesus is worth it. Jesus is worth it all. So don't, don't give up. Don't stop on the third lap. Don't stop on the fifth lap. Keep obeying. Keep obeying even when nothing happens. Don't give up, church family, because Jesus is so worth it. And I don't want any of us to miss it. I bow our heads in prayer and invite our worship team to come back up and lead us in one more song. Lord, I thank you that you are worth it. Jesus, I pray that you would help us, God, because we can't even obey. We can't even make it around lap one, let alone lap six or lap 455, unless you come and help us, unless you give us the strength. Lord, would you open up our eyes to see how beautiful you are? Lord, would you continue to just give us a taste of your kingdom and the kingdom to come? Would you help us to see how lovely and wonderful and beautiful and how worth it it is to obey you and to follow you? And Jesus, remind us of that in the moments when we forget, in the moments we take our eyes off you. Because, Jesus, we love you. We love you so much, but we know that we need your help for us to love you even more and to love you the way that we should. Lord, would you give us the strength to keep obeying, to keep loving you, and remind us that it is so, so worth it. We pray this in your holy and precious name. Amen. Amen.